Hello and welcome to Roll to Metal. My name is Jonah Knight. In this bonus episode, I talk with three writers who have published mystery scenarios for Brindlewood Bay, Sean Patrick Kane, Alicia Furness, and David Morrison. You can find links in the show notes for their work. And if you haven't had a chance to check out the Brindlewood Bay crowdfunding campaign, hey, this is a great time to do so. Got a link for that as well. Okay, let's go. Hi, I'm David Morrison. I am a long-term RPG player, and I am also uh, have, have written and designed some work myself as well. I have written for both Brindlewood Bay as well as for the uh, sister game, The Between, as well. More of my writing is, is for The Between and for Brindlewood Bay, but I still have a place in my heart for it. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's a really fun game to write for, so I'm glad to be here uh, today to chat about it. I'm Alicia Furness. I am a TTRPG writer and designer. I've been doing it since about 2019. I have written so much Brindlewood Bay material. Uh, too much Brindlewood Bay material. I have both official Brindlewood Bay content that's um, in the Kickstarter and uh, some stuff that I have designed on my own, some unofficial stuff. And I even spun off from that and made Paranormal Inc., which is a GMless hack of Brindlewood Bay, uh, because I just really love the system and I can't get enough of it. My full name is Sean Patrick Kane, and I use he, him, and they, them pronouns. I am an educator, an artist, and a game designer. Um, in addition to writing a Brindlewood Bay adventure that I'm very proud of, um, I've also written the solo game Longfall 1983, the fake chess game series, and the brand new tattoo role-playing party game. I'm really excited to be here to be able to talk about this cool game and platform for some cool adventure writing. Thank you all for dropping by this cozy little podcast today to talk about Brindlewood Bay. I'm really excited because each of you has been writing and publishing TTRPG material for some time. And the big crossover here amongst the four of us is that Brindlewood Bay seems to have captured something in our imagination in order to want to tell stories uh, with this game. So I guess my first question is, before even getting to Brindlewood Bay... Why write for role-playing games in the first place? Why not write your stories in a different form? Yeah, um, I think it's um, it's an interesting form to work in. I, I think what's what I really like is the um, interactive nature of role-playing games and how you can kind of build off of that. Um, so you can create stories that sort of live rather than just being uh, something static, which I think is great. Um, it's always great seeing um, other people take your work and run with it. Um, I love love catching when people uh, play online stuff that I've I've written and, and I can get a chance to see. It. I, I really love seeing how they take it. So that's that's one thing. Um, I think the other thing for me as well is that for me, my writing for role playing games has definitely grown just out of my love of playing the games themselves. And I think there there comes a point where once you spend any amount of time um, playing role-playing games, you end up writing game, rewriting for games, even if you don't like think, oh yeah, I am, I am now a games designer. Just sort of every time you know you you write an adventure for D D or um even at the table when you come up with cool stuff, it's all feeding into that that sort of you are creating, even if it's not, you know, formal writing, it is still that same creative process. So I think it's for me certainly it's I never thought, oh, I am I'm gonna go out and, and write games because that's the thing I want to do. It's just because of my experience, it's where I've ended up, I think. For me, I started to design games because I wanted to see things that hadn't been easily available to me when I was younger. So um, as a femme person, I was often around people who played role-playing games, but I was never invited to play them. And also from what I saw, the content didn't particularly interest me. And so when I got older and I started finding more variety of things just sort of beyond Dungeons and Dragons or whatever, I mean, I also play D&D, but um, finding a, a wider variety made me want to make games for people like me who didn't see themselves represented, who didn't see the kinds of content. Um, so even though it's out there, it's harder to find. And I wanted to help contribute to making more content so it's easier to find. I feel like I would just combine those two great answers into mine. <laughs> um, David's mention of the interactive nature was something that was really immediately clear to me when I started 
playing and GMing games very, uh, I was going to say late in life, but as an adult, like I did not have exposure to role-playing games as a kid. I did not grow up in D&D. This is very much like an adult hobby that I started dipping my toes in. And being around the table of people and saying, okay, we're about to do something over the next couple hours that none of us could do individually. It's all about like what we're going to be able to each add to this kind of special little stew that we're brewing was really, really wonderful. And I think that kind of interactive collaborative nature feeds very naturally into the GM to designer pipeline <laughs> when you start thinking about like, okay, how else can I set up other people to also have those really lovely experiences? And then hearing, at least when you talked about like the content that you were creating, I think the other part for me was like, okay, we're here at this table, the five of us, we're making this awesome special stew. And we're going to be really aspiring to telling stories and creating narratives that we don't see in 10 other places, right? We are not here to rehash the movie we saw last week. We might be internalizing and digesting and kind of regurgitating ingredients and elements in new and unexpected ways, but we're doing something special and new here. And so I think that is a lot of what drives my work as a game designer. Yeah, that and that almost answers my next question, uh, it, which is why going from role-playing games in general to Brindlewood Bay in particular, there is a uniqueness to the the concept of this game and just the, the setting and who your characters are and what they're doing. And I think that for storytellers, uh, for me in particular, it's like, oh, this is an area where we have not exhausted all of the different dungeon crawling scenarios for me anyway. So is that, I guess, Sean, is that what brought you to Brindlewood Bay? Like the, the uniqueness of the setting or was it maybe a little something else? Yeah, I think, I think yes. And also other things. I think the yes is that Brindlewood Bay is a kind of something that you can present in two minutes to someone who's never played a role-playing game before and they kind of get the vibe and the deal in a very clear way which makes the access to that storytelling really meaningful and powerful i've played brindlewood bay with folks that have never played a role-playing game before and it's really cool how like just it's a good fit it just like naturally it's like trying on a good pair of pants right um but on top of that i think with something that's in the structure of Burnwood Bay is like the way it kind of opens itself up to a wide variety of references, right? When we think about all the media, both that Burnwood Bay is kind of absorbing and bringing into its DNA, but also pushing back against, right? Even that kind of rejection of certain tropes or certain kind of like overplayed narratives, that rejection is still kind of calling to mind those kinds of stories. And so for me, one of the things that's really fun about Brindlewood Bay and writing for Brindlewood Bay is that it's a platform where you can take and tweak and present in new ways these cinematic and media references that might have been stewing inside you for a really long time. And now there's like a platform where you can kind of like tweak it and talk about it and maybe even satirize it and have other people on the same page very quickly and efficiently. Alicia, was that your experience? What what brought you specifically to this game? Um, what brought me specifically to Brindlewood Bay uh, is more of a personal um, story. I had played it. Um, I, you know, I'd back to the Gauntlet Patreon and I'd, I'd played it with some of my players. Uh, um, I was the keeper and, and we had a good time with it. Um, and that, that was that was kind of it. Um, and then I had uh, sort of spectacularly blown up my own um, 5e writing career uh, when there was a little bit of controversy about a project I was involved in. And I just needed something different. And I happened to see that um, Jason Cordova had put out a call looking for people to write things for Brindlewood Bay. And I was like, why not? Like, let's just see what happens. And I just loved the system so much. It was refreshing for me. And like, partly because of what Sean is talking about, I was burnt out. I was bitter about sort of what was going on um, in my career. And here was this thing that was so different and it allowed me into games in a new way. Still, some of those things are there. Some of those tropes are there and they're exciting and you can play with them. Um, but it gave me a different perspective and I was just 
immediately hooked. And again, because I want to make the kind of content that's not available, if you put badass old ladies in front of me, obviously I'm going to say hell yes to that. Yeah. Again, my route is, 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 is somewhat different again. Um, I, um, I, I actually, uh, I'm in the privileged position that I had played in some of Jason's early playtests of The Between, which for listeners who've, who've heard, heard the um, uh, interview with Jason uh, recently, um, you know, mentions in that that the, the, the Between was actually written or mostly written before Brindlewood Bay. Um, so when um, I'd also as well um, written um, a couple of pieces for um, the um, Gauntlet's Codex uh, magazine um, already by the point by this point. So when Jason was very first um, uh, sort of getting Brindlewood Bay ready for publication in the Codex, um, he, he'd sort of put out a call for a few people um, to to contribute material. And because I had essentially previous experience with the um, with the game uh, with the system anyway um, through through the between, um, that's sort of how I got involved in that. Um, the uh my um my mystery uh the long dark tea time of the soulless which uh which uh obviously you've just been playing recently um was i think uh and and forgive me if i'm incorrect it was i think the first one released after after the game itself um because essentially because i had that bit of experience ready I, I i was writing it alongside jason sort of getting the final files ready for publication so i sort of it came out a bit earlier there um so so sort of i essentially wrote that um, wrote that mystery before I'd actually played Brindlewood Bay itself, um, so that was kind of my, uh, my 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 route into the game. But I I do want to kind of um, jump in on what what sort of has been said a bit already as to why I why even if I hadn't got into it that way, I I think I it still would have found it really interesting. Is is as sort of been mentioned, it's a really evocative um, theme. It's got some, it's a really it's a really interesting thing to write for because you can draw and as it's been said so many uh so many um, bits of story out there i think there's something about some a bit a semi a semi-contemporary um setting that makes you feel like you, you can take it in more directions because it's just it, it is a broader field to play with um and i think as well what what really um i really find it um interesting and why i think other people maybe uh, and, and so if I'm, I'm spoiling a future question as well but um might like about writing for the between um is that the the structure is is such a nice way to write there's so much kind of um it's a great combination of guidance and freedom um that you get with the sort of the structure of a mystery um and so i think that even if i hadn't like had a, a slightly unorthodox uh entrance to the to the to the project um it that that element of it would have still really drawn me um to it yeah the interesting thing about the scenarios the mysteries for brindlewood bay is how concise they are the the form from the very beginning has been about two pages for just about each one of these things which gives us a lot of a lot more power behind word choice and sentence structures. So I, I am always interested in talking about word choice. Uh, so because of the concise nature of these, that's, it seems a little natural to sort of get into the power of a specific word and a specific phrase with this. Was that style, uh, I guess, was that tricky for any of you to sort of say, instead of writing, 20 pages to tell this scenario i'm now going to do it in two was was condensing that down easy was it second nature was it was it hard to get your heads around yeah i i actually found it really easy i think um i i love as a, a writer for and a player of brenda wood bay is how much power it puts in the hands of the players and Keeping that in mind as I was writing just made it so easy to be like, this is actually not my story to tell. I'm not creating a story. I'm giving you the pieces to create a story and it's entirely your story. And so I found it very easy to be like, just think of a few evocative words, a random clue that's going to be in a weird spot. And it, it was very easy to condense down. I think naturally I'm also just 
not a particularly verbose writer. I want to get to the point and have that information be easily accessible, ready, readily available, and very usable. And I think that a Brindlewood Bay mystery uh, is all of those things. So it was a good fit for my style, personally. Yeah, just to add on to that, I feel like there's something built into the adventures that kind of leans into this very economical language that for me is a very natural way of writing. <laughs> I feel like I sometimes struggle when I have to kind of like weave every single ingredient together. I would much rather just present the ingredients. Um, and Alicia, the other thing I heard that I think is really important is that this is a game that gives everyone plenty of scaffolding and support, but also doesn't talk to the players or the keeper as someone who is not smart, right? So when you have that really powerful evocative detail that you have written very carefully into your adventure, like that's enough, right? That like people will be able to kind of see that and think about it and run with it and bring it to the table in some interesting way. Um, and so I feel that idea of giving just enough for people to kind of run with and play with and explore is exactly that balance that makes a really good Brindlewood Bay adventure or mystery. It's also similar to that, just a good exercise in learning to let go of your own intention as well. So like if I write something down and I'm like, oh, this is obviously what I mean by this. And then I see it in an actual play and they've interpreted it completely differently. As a writer, you have that first instinct where you're like, oh, that's not, that's not what I meant. Um, but so it becomes a really great way to learn to let go of your ego and just like let the game exist as it is on its own. Yeah, I would love for to have run their own, like the mysteries they have written. Have you encountered that in your own work? Like, have you found yourself being like, oh, I, I wasn't expecting to use it this way, but sure, why not? Like, let me run it here. Yeah, absolutely. I think because because there's so much um, power in the hands of the players um, that what I think I've said is sometimes not what they've heard and then you just you're like yeah okay this is what we're doing this is where we're going with this now and it's a it's a fun exciting development yeah i think i think what's what is really interesting is is, is like I said it's that almost um i almost want to say like room for error but i mean that in a good way um in the sense that like um there is so much space for for people to take what is written and just run with it in their own direction um Again, even if that wasn't necessarily um, the the like I said authorial intent and all that, but it's it's I think that's that's what's really powerful about it, and I think that's that's why the sort of the very focused text um, works really well for that. Um, I, I'm, I'm just thinking actually again what, one example from the um, the playthrough um, you've been doing, Jonah, that the, the um, Eva Cole in the guest house where I think one of the description lines they use is like porcelain perfect skin and the way you just took that and ran with it was was perfect I loved that it was uh that was really cool um and and those sort of moments I think are what what the the medium really lends itself to um and sort of to take it from from the other perspective um as you're saying for I mean I'm, I'm probably going to get some uh uh, push back on this maybe from 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 Jason and the team because my my threats for the between um and and to a lesser extent my mysteries for the um, for Brindlewood Bay do tend to be a little on the more verbose side um I do tend to push up hard against the uh, the word limit at times however I, I, I still think it's sort of yeah that I, I really like that challenge of coming up with the things like the quotes the descriptions the the clues all those moments where you can just just communicate that uh that really intense flavor and yeah that from the practical side as well it, it's it's a lot easier to write when you're not having to do all the connective tissue when you're not having to think oh does it make sense if this is here because it doesn't matter doesn't need to uh it, it will make sense when it is used at the table um it will make sense when the the players come to theorize me as a writer i don't have to worry i can just like it that that's that's a problem for someone else to deal with you know it's uh, in the nicest possible way i was also thinking because you said on this you know this topic of being verbose and pushing up against the word limit something that even though I tend to find myself to be a more concise writer, sometimes you do get in that headspace where you're maybe coming in with a preconceived notion. Um, you know, you try not to, but you have an idea in your head. Um, what I really like about Brindlewood Bay is actually through those like establishing questions and paint the scene questions. Anytime I have gotten too verbose, I, you know, I just released um, 
one I had released on my own about a magician. And I had written out this whole section and I was like, this is too long. This is too much information. And so I was able to be like, actually, I can just reduce this down to a question and ask the players what has happened, ask the players what they're interpreting from this scene, um, which I think is a really fun way to deal with when you're like, oh, I'm I'm getting too much into this, is that that structure um, that that you were talking about, David, even allows you as a writer to go back and be like, oh, wait, there's a thing here that's going to help me out to sort of reach the goal that the, the system wants me to reach, which is less information for me, more information in the hands of the players. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd, I'd um, absolutely agree with that. And, um, and I think just that it's almost that you're almost writing from the position of even when you're not explicitly writing questions which admittedly a lot of the the key points of the writing actually are the questions that you ask but even even when you're not explicitly writing those questions I feel that the the best sort of what use of locations and characters uh, suspects um, in in the mysteries is to give the keeper ideas for questions to ask the, 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 essentially the 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 um the the characters and that that you bring in i i feel certainly should should ask more you know should raise more questions than they answer um at the end of the day it's good to have a little bit of structure in there to say oh yeah you know this person is having an affair with with that other person because it just gives that that initial um seed of an idea to play from but everything from that point onwards it's like that's that's where the the mechanics of the game or the structure of the game however you want to phrase that really sort of take over from it i i, I think my suspicion uh, as to why this game's scenarios can be so much shorter than a lot of other role-playing games is because of this thing that's baked in about there not being a predetermined answer. I wrote a Call of Cthulhu scenario a while back, and it was very much like, here's what you have to foreshadow. Don't miss this. If they come to this place, make sure the person is there doing the thing. And with this, because we don't have any of that, we don't have three pages of keeper advice about foreshadowing and making sure you set up the big surprise at the end. Even within role-playing games, the difference in forms between the different systems can sometimes make a huge difference in the way we present these things. And I think what's interesting as well, like specifically on that point of like the idea of like, yeah, your sort of traditional adventure where you are, where like, oh, well, you know that at this point in the future, something's going to happen. So you can foreshadow it here. The thing is that that even with a game like this, that still happens because if if like your initial scene you have you know the the, the the mysterious figure lurking in the shadows you are going to want to find out who that is later on so it will come up and that that kind of moment will play into what happens later a lot of the time i mean yeah obviously some 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 threads do get dropped uh, along the way but but it's still that sort of idea that i think the way that people build off of details that have been set the way that people spark off of each other at the table every time you introduce an element that is going to get picked up and reused later because it's in everyone's mind, even if they're not doing it um, consciously. Um, I think it's 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 still going to feed in. And, and again, in the between, there is like some specific mechanics around that very sort of process. But it's, um, I think it's just just something that happens. And I mean, not just even I'm not even saying just sort of just in Brindlewood Bay and in the between, just in in games in general um, that, that have a more heavily improv element. That sort of stuff just I I certainly find happens naturally just because of how human brains work. Yeah, you know, I've I've heard Jason Cordova talk about how one of the great GM moves is to like <laughs> just to eavesdrop on conversations about where people think it's going and then pull the best one out. And I feel like Brindlewood Bay kind of cuts out the middleman in that way, uh, where it's like, yeah, like here's the shadowy figure at the beginning. Like, and now as a player, like you tell me who you want that shadowy figure to be like, what would be the most engaging thing for you? Like, who do you want it to be? Let's roll that way. And I feel games that allow that flexibility. Um, I know some people feel like they're compromised because there should be like a narrative that the players are figuring out, but at least in the way that I play games and run games at my table and think about kind of just the general idea of collaborative interactive narrative, like that stuff is exciting. Like, yeah. Like why would I not want to have that shadowy figure be exactly the person you're hoping it would be and have this like great suspicion about. So let's build something around exactly that. You just touched on something, Sean, this idea that people are like, Oh, it's, it should be a narrative that the, that the players are figuring out. Um, and it's so interesting because at least for me personally, what I love about Brindlewood Bay is that I don't ever feel dumb. That's a thing that I think is so empowering. Like if I sit down in a, I'm not, I'm not 
me personally, Alicia, I'm not a great puzzle solver generally. Um, so to sit down and play a game where there is no answer, so I can literally never be wrong unless the dice tell me I'm wrong, is such a genius and open and inclusive way to make gaming accessible for people. Um, and so it's just, I'm not, I'm not saying that you say this, but just this idea that there are people out there who's like, no, you have to have that mystery and there has to be a solid answer is mind boggling to me because I've never wanted to play that way. So that Brindlewood Bay exists is kind of revolutionary for me. Yeah. And I think there's like DNA that goes back to the, like the power by the apocalypse games that Brindlewood Bay kind of like takes into itself, but I'm totally agree with you. Like as a player, I remember, you know, after I got into role-playing games as an adult, I was like, you know what? I should try like D and D. Like I should go to my local meetup and like do a little one shot or like a drop-in game. And I remember very early on, uh, they were like, okay, like I set the scene, like the, the, the DM had this huge idea of this expansive world and this map that people could drop in and drop out of. And they plopped this on the map and they're like, all right, what direction do you go in? And I remember being like, well, does it matter? And they're like, oh yeah, it matters. And I was like, well, I was like, then tell me, like, I don't know. Like, I don't want to go, I don't want to suddenly go like in the boring direction. Like if East is like, oh, sorry, you went East. Now it's going to be a boring couple of hours. Like, why, why would I want to be a part of that story? Like, what am I doing here? And so, um, yeah, like the idea of what you said, like feeling smart, right? Knowing that the failures are only going to be there to kind of curate a feel and a vibe to the story that you're telling, as opposed to walls that you have to like make a U-turn on and back up and then try again as if like the last 10 minutes were just kind of spinning your wheels wasting. Um, that stuff I think is really important, not just to burn away, but just in general to running a really fun, exciting game. Yeah. And I think as well, sort of to feed in on that, um, uh, and and the idea of like um like, like you were saying Alicia about the idea of like the puzzle solving element and and you know yeah not not feeling dumb at the table sort of thing, um I think it's there's a couple of bits that play into it for me. First, start the 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 experience of coming up with a theory in Brindlewood Bay, it still feels like solving a puzzle. You know, it, you still get that same like um uh you know I don't know release of endorphins or whatever you want to call it that you get from like coming up with the with the solution, a correct solution to a puzzle i think it's it's definitely feels the same okay maybe not everyone will feel the same some people really rail against it fine don't play the game it gives you that same sort of satisfaction but yeah that's the, the thing and again i know jason's spoken about this a lot before with regards again so i won't beat over the, the territory too much but um it, like i said it's 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 difficult to write a good puzzle for a role-playing game that people can actually solve because you need you need to give them you need so much information to be given um, and for people to like realize that they are being given information that by the end of it it sometimes feels like you, you are just basically giving them the answer anyway and so what's the point um whereas because all of the information you get in Brindlewood Bay is stuff that you have that has come up at the table then and there there isn't anything that anything that has not happened at the table has not happened there is no missing context you you know the full context for what's happened so you can always come up with a solution to the puzzle which I think is really interesting and it's I also think it's it lets you play with stories and ideas that you might not otherwise be able to do because if there was a correct answer you would be asking for the players to have to be told so much to work it out that you couldn't do it so i mean um like again the, the example of, of um one of the sweeps week mysteries that i've written um that I think, again i believe is going to be in the kickstarter uh, it's called dress to kill is based around a very particular local folk tradition in a cluster of villages um in you know like 30 30 minutes drive up the road from me here in uh, england uh, so if i tried to write that as like your classic call of cthulhu mystery and apps it absolutely could and, and the 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 the, sort of the the threat that i've done is plays with a lot of those sort of tropes the amount of background information that the players would need to get the answer it would just make it unwieldy to do but because the answers don't you know if if they get the exact strictures of what what the, the what these particular traditions are about wrong it doesn't matter uh you know because what the answer because the their experience of that that cultural thing will be right for the game that they're in um so it does, so you don't have that same yeah problem of having um of having sort of mistakes uh, as it were 
it, it, it just made me think that yeah that, like i probably i probably wouldn't be able to 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 have that particular mystery in a more traditional sense and still have it make sense when you start writing a new mystery for brindlewood bay is there a place that you normally start i find that i tend to start with location and like where could this take place and then build around that do any of you have a different defined starting point that works for you but victim and location are obviously um often quite intertwined um like that if there's going to be a murder at the uh at the opera house then it's probably you know the star or the manager who is going to get killed uh, you know it's that that sort of idea that it, it, it's um so but yeah i think it's it's the same sort of idea i think that that initial for me certainly anyway that initial premise of yeah the the the, the where and the who uh, which like i said i think are, are, are quite quite intertwined with one another for me it's often about the kind of more cinematic language or reference point that I'm using, which I think kind of goes so closely with like, like David, when you said like the opera house, immediately my brain started like rattling through like the different subgenres of film that I like would incorporate into that narration. But for me, um, that's often where I start uh, because we are existing in a game that is kind of its own media, right? Like there, there are commercial breaks. Like there are, there's a, there's a level of performance and embodiment that goes beyond the standard role-playing game. So I think for me, thinking about that kind of material really helps. So um, one, uh, an adventure or a mystery that I, I have not published, but I've run for my players uh, is really grounded in this film, The Duke of Burgundy, which is about um, kind of like a mystery kind of neo-noir built around a world that is populated by nothing but female lepidopterists, right? Butterfly experts. Um, and so that's like, that I, I saw that. I was like, Oh my God, Brenda would they, <laughs> um, you know, and thinking about like the stuff that I think about, not just in terms of like what I like, but also what I want to push back against. So like the elements that you can like take and twist out of things that may not be the most kind of like thoughtful ideas of how to consider women and older women on film and in screen stuff like you know what is douglas sirk doing what is you know carol reed doing what is alfred hitchcock doing like those kinds of things those those are filmmakers that have very awkward or troubled or just like toxic relationships with the women that they were working with but there's also like an opportunity there to kind of like subvert that and twist that and play with that and these are references that people are familiar and people are kind of excited to like roll up their sleeves and be like yeah screw that like let's do it this way and i really like that so that's often where i'll start in thinking about like the way i'm going to set the scene and present it in terms of like the actual cinematic language and references that i'm using yes to all of these things every mystery has had sort of a different spark of the idea like was it a location I was excited about was it a media property I was excited about so there will always be something that like kickstarts that immediate spark but I think my starting point when conceptualizing actually ends up being more about like theme and perspective what is it that I'm trying to say what is it that's the overarching theme of the mystery that I'm writing so um, I wrote a sweet sweet mystery called let the night one in which is set in frozen northern Canada and is sort of broadly inspired by the thing. So I was like, oh, I wanted something in Canada and the thing and it's dark and it's snowy. That was like my immediate spot. But when it came to actually thinking about the mystery, those didn't really play in. It was like, what do I want to say about darkness, about the cold, about how that links to what it is to be an elderly woman? And that ends up being sort of where I start so there's the spark and then there's like the actual work of getting started is largely about the theme for me i also did forget the the other uh obvious starting point which is coming up with a really bad pun for the title i am not good at that i am not good at the puns it is it is my big achilles heel here i think <laughs> uh, you have your idea you have your starting point and then you start to populate your world with suspects it feels like part of the world building and part of the mystery building is also having the right suspects. So how do you, at the line level, make sure that the keeper, whoever's reading this, is going to really see how this suspect is a suspect? Do you, do you have thoughts about, or examples from your work, about, I actually struggled over this word or these three words because I needed to make sure that this idea really came across in very concise language. 
So when you're writing a suspect in Brenda Bay, the traditional way to do it is to give three descriptors at the start. Suspects are the thing I struggle with the most, I will say. I'll have like, oh, no, I'm like, oh, this, this thing's why don't we do these tropes? Like if we're talking about the cinematic thing, right? These are the people that I want to put in it. Then I want to subvert them. How am I doing that? I struggle the most, though, with those three verb or words, descriptors, whatever, because they are so important. I think that those first three words should tell you everything you need to know about who this person is. And my instinct is always to go to the most boring, mundane three words to start. And then I have to go back and rewrite them Um, because, in my opinion, they should tell you how the character like presents themselves, how they play, and it should give you a reason to suspect them somewhere in one of those three words in context with the rest of your thing. And that is the biggest struggle for me. And I don't even know if I have an answer for how to solve it. It's just the hardest part for me. I think for me, one thing that I think about when I'm creating a roster of suspects is like, what is something that is very reasonable for them to feel or think or act about, but will also be something that kind of prevents them from 100% engaging with the mystery at hand, right? Whether that is someone who just clearly is exhausted and hungover from a night of partying or has a million other things to do or seem to be presenting themselves in this kind of like very self-conscious way that doesn't ring true. Like if you can just kind of drop one of those seeds and I, I find that that's often enough for players to be like, Ooh, I really don't like this person. Something's going on. And What's great is that in the real world, everyone always has a ton of those. And so I feel like making sure that each character has one of those kind of mundane things that can nevertheless kind of obstruct or cause them to withdraw from the investigation, Um, not because they're obviously the murderer who is trying to slip through the shadows, but just someone who has other stuff on their mind. I feel like that's like the key there, because then the, the keeper can always kind of blow that up and explore it and kind of amplify it as the players maneuver towards and away from certain characters. Yeah, I'd, I'd 100% uh, agree with that, uh, Sean. I think that the, um, I think f- for me, certainly, you know, I, I grew up on um, Agatha Christie novels and TV versions of Agatha Christie novels. Um, and certainly in um, a lot of the British sort of crime, so certainly like more cosy crime dramas, like Midsummer Murders, it's like the absolute like, uh, well, pinnacle on a day, depending on your, 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 your view of the genre, but um, of the, of that sort of form, you, you have to kind of position everyone to have a reason to have done the murder. Not necessarily a good reason. Um, and obviously don't, because of, again, the way the game works, you don't ever really want to detail it too much, but you just have to, there has to be something in the background of them that that could lead them into it. And the other thing as well, I will say, I definitely, when I approach it, there are often suspects, so there are often people that I have in my mind as kind of being capital S suspects, people that I think, yeah, there's a, this, it, it seems obvious that this person would have would have done the murder whether they did or didn't, whether that's the red herring that it seems so obvious that they would have done it or not, that's cool. And then I'll have others who it's like, okay, I mean, potentially, yes, of course, they could have done, they are a suspect, maybe they did. But the the reasoning behind it doesn't seem as immediately obvious. And I think as well, what I, I like to do with suspects is to give a bit of a range of what I think will be the obvious like interactions between people, except making some of the characters quite sympathetic or where it's likely they'll be more sympathetic um, for, for the, for the mavens to interact with um, others who are more overtly obnoxious at the outset. Um, so that there's that kind of range of different reactions. And, and again, as we say, people, the, the keeper may pick that up and may read something entirely, uh, entirely different in, in it than I, I sort of anticipated. Um, I, I know, again, like having watched Jason run um, Long Dark Tea Time um, a couple of times now, he tends to run Percy's a bit more sinister, whereas I kind of wrote him in as almost like a, a comic relief character kind of thing. So it's, it's interesting to see, obviously, how people interpret the characters differently. But that's that's kind of the tends to be the intention I go in with. I think okay, I'm going to put in this character that, 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 that there's a good chance the Mavens will quite like and, and want to hang out with. I'll put in this other character who is you know going to really get under their skin. Uh, long dark tea time. Uh, Lara Sanchez is is specifically in there to be kind of a 
divisive i think i think that you know a lot of characters will either really like her or really hate her um and and i think that's that sort of thing is is is, is quite cool to put in but i will also echo what, what alicia said about those 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 initial descriptions are very important and um yeah i think it's from the perspective of looking at writing yeah is i think it is important to make sure that they aren't just like very mundane things that don't really tell you anything i think you really want to get a lot of storytelling in in, in that word choice um i was gonna say there's also the difference between like when we're talking about a sort of regular mystery and when we're talking about a sweeps week mystery because the way that we write the characters is so at least for me so vastly different for those two situations so and i think um like in in a sweeps week mystery they don't really have to be suspect at all they can just be a cast of colorful characters who happen to be around which so when you're thinking about writing sometimes if i'm stuck on a thing and I'm like, my suspects are not coming together. It's a matter of switching. Maybe I'm writing a regular mystery and I'm like, oh, actually these suspects are for a sweeps week mystery or vice versa. And so there's, because there is, I think a very different framework there between like the suspects and the characters that would appear in a regular mystery and a sweeps week mystery. So writing for them is a little bit of a different mind shift in that regard too. In my mind, there's like, I'm literally popping like, like I'm like picking up and then like dropping something in. And so like, what do you plop when and how is like a really important part of both writing and running these mysteries. Um, a moment ago, I was going to ask a, a little different question. So I'm sorry if I'm like taking this in any direction, but hearing people talk about like how they come up with the characters and how those characters are kind of informed by the theme and the setting and those sparks that we talked about before. I would love to hear from you all how you like to play with the void clues because i feel like those are the ones where you really get to go in whatever direction you want and as long as it's somehow unsettling and connected i feel like that's where i often am like oh here's where i'm really going to hit the big themes like here's where i'm going to inject a little politics or ideologies or like the things that i find most like true to myself and what I find scary. So I would love to hear from you all. Like, how do you think about void clues? What are your favorites that you've written? Anything like that? I agree that I think void clues are a great place to play with like the themes of what you're working on. And I try to do a mix. So like five void clues, I guess, on average in a, in a mystery. Um, and I'll try to do like half that are very strongly related to the theme or the setting that are really like easy to work in. But then I also like to include ones that are totally wacky because of course these void clues are building us up to that mystery at the end of the campaign. So they might not necessarily be um, connected at all uh, in that regard. But I think the favorite one I, I've written is for uh, an unofficial mystery I wrote called Who Let the Dogs Out, where I was experimenting with what it would be like to write a mystery that wasn't about murder. And this was before um, Sweet Sweep mysteries were a thing. Um, so it's about a pet, a pet napping at a dog show. And I just had like a swirling void that burps out rats constantly. And I don't know, just the image of it really, really amused me. And like rats at a pet show, it's my favorite. Is it the best one? Probably not, but it's my favorite one that I've ever written because I just let comical idea of rats being constantly burped out really spoke to me. I feel like belching and burping is a weirdly common thing. For I definitely have one in my published history that is exactly like, I don't know exactly what it's burping or belching, but yes, like there's something about that I don't know what you want to call it, that exhalation from the void that is really enticing. The name, the uh, fragrant void, I feel something very organic about it. it. It definitely has that kind of visceral nature, I feel, rather than a kind of clean starscape as it were um so yeah i can definitely see that I agree with that i think that the idea of the, the the finding the thematic uh nature is it uh in it is quite um interesting um i think so again like with with the long dark tea time um the i i definitely put in a couple of bits in there that were designed to evoke i i put in quite a lot of references to the kind of the tale of persephone in the underworld into that mystery um and a couple of the void clues definitely kind of lean into that territory um the, the black dog which uh, which tends to get used quite a lot it's, it's kind of the, 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 that was both in the allusion to the, sort of the, the classic sort of well tradition of, of black dogs throughout 
folklore in general um but also like specifically this kind of nod to uh to, to kerberos and all that so um although, although the one that i i think my favorite one from that particular one um is, is one that i have actually used when running it which is um uh, a, a, a face in the fire whispering secrets because it just 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 a nice weird thing to have happen that, that doesn't have to necessarily mean anything other than it's just a bit strange yeah and and it leads to the keeper being able to be like what do you hear to the players right what are those secrets and suddenly there's like a whole another scene that you get just from that one void clue the other thing i like to do with void clues is lean into i don't know how to describe this the mundane weird so void clues can be big and flashy right we can have a void that's burping out rats or you know the black dog that's chasing you around or you can have those things that i think may play more like psychologically like you turn and you think there's tentacles coming out of a cocktail glass or something and then it's not there when you look again i really like void clues that play with that as well because it grounds them again in the coziness um, and the unsettling nature of these kind of small town mysteries. Yeah, I think Alicia, when I hear you say that, like it's there's an element of paranoia that goes with kind of like the the degradation of the crowns when you think about like the character arcs there that can go there in my mystery about you know a chapel with a garden on an island in a rainstorm uh there's a lot about like gardening and one of the void clues is just like a pile of dead desiccated honeybees and it's one of those things that like the players will always really latch onto and suddenly start inventing their own narratives around which kind of naturally bleeds into this kind of like how much of reality are you still gripping and where is this paranoia starting to set in it's this very nice organic kind of natural way of bringing character motivation and player performance kind of together I, yeah i think that like that's one of those really cool things that void clues can do i think because i started writing these in the context of doing a podcast campaign i ended up structuring my my void clues based around the overall campaign mystery the 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 our version of the fragrant void because that was the thing i wanted to make sure like each individual mystery is its own thing and is is hopefully as standalone and as as traditional to brindlewood bay as i can but i sort of wrote more details about where we were going before we began so that i could sort of seed in void clues from my grand list of all void clues that would all sort of point in the same direction. And then when we got to long, dark tea time of the soul, I was like, well, I'm not going to use any of those. I will use one of the ones from the provided list and just kept looking at them and thinking, how does this fit into my grand plan? I don't know. And picked one that didn't. And now it's my job to figure out, you know, what can I do to make that more interesting and, and to blow up my original plan. And then as I take them and try to translate those mysteries that were designed for a standalone podcast thing it's like oh can i actually make this something written that other people can just play on their own having to like dig further into sort of the the, the traditional way that void clues are presented has been fun I think it's really interesting that you're talking about the shared list of void clues, a grand list of void clues, because that's actually something that I'm doing right now. I kickstarted The Unquiet Dark. It's a Brindlewood Bay prequel campaign, which will have a new dark conspiracy. Um, and it's limited in scope. So something that um, Chris, my co-writer, and I have decided to do is actually create, instead of individual void clues for each mystery, a shared list so that you're building towards that campaign at the end. And I actually think that's something that's really great about Brindlewood Bay is we can sit here and talk about it in a traditional mystery and the void clues, but it's so flexible that you can push it to whatever you need. So if you're someone who needs or wants more structure in that campaign, you want to know maybe as the keeper where you're heading to at the end, you can absolutely make those changes to best suit your play style and to play with the limits of the system and, and i think that kind of extends to clues more generally as well within within individual mysteries themselves because obviously we've said a lot about how oh you know it's all about the players coming up with an answer for the clues that they have in front of them at the table and that's obviously very very true but obviously as well the thing that you can i don't feel it's it's counter to the uh, intent of the game unless you're really kind of 
like trying to mislead people with it is you can absolutely put your thumb on the scale with the clues that you give out when people look for them. You can absolutely, you know, favor certain suspects and, and what have you with the clues that you are giving out, because obviously some clues will, will seem more, more obviously point towards certain suspects or certain ideas and stuff like that. And so that's still something you do have a lot of influence over as the keeper, you know, yeah. So, it's, and, I th- and I think both approaches can be very good. You can very much just like kind of look at the list of clues and go, "I'm going to pick this one because I don't know what it means." Or you can think, "Oh, yeah, no, I, I, I want, I want to kind of, yeah, steer this, this, uh, this mystery towards a certain place or a certain idea. Maybe it won't go there, but you can very much, yeah, tilt the scales in your balance." It looks like our time is getting towards the end here. My final question would be, because Brindlewood Bay is a little bit different from where most people start with their role-playing game experience, their hobby, do you think that keepers, GMs for Brindlewood Bay need maybe a, a slightly different skill set than in other games? Like, what would you, if, if someone is coming to this game for the first time, maybe from Dungeons & Dragons or Call of Cthulhu, what advice would you give the GM about how to think about running one of these games optimally. Relinquish control is my my number one tip. You have to stop feeling like the author because the players are equally the author. And I think that's true in a D&D game too, but it often doesn't end up getting played that way. Um, you know, you have a sort of ultimate authority and the keeper is really, in my opinion, not the ultimate authority. So relinquish control, but thusly, or conversely, relatedly, if you have players who I think particularly coming from like a D&D world, encourage them to become the co-authors of the game, encourage them to engage with the mechanics. In my experience for running um, Brindlewood Bay for people who primarily play Dungeons and Dragons, they come in with a very preconceived notion about what should be done, how things are going to work. Clues, for example, I'll drop a clue and they'll try to get more information about the clue, uh, which obviously is kind of not really how Brindlewood Bay works. And so you have to relinquish that control and then encourage the players to take ownership of it um, if it's not something that they're comfortable with. In my experience, people who haven't played a role-playing game actually do better with Brindlewood Bay than someone perhaps coming from a D&D background because the play style can feel very different. And have fun. That's my tip. Relinquish control and have fun. I 100% agree with that. <laughs> I, I feel like there are no secrets at this table, right? Like, like the characters are going to be uncovered secrets, but like the rules of the game are not secret. I'm going to tell you right away, like you are the ones who are going to piece this together. Your game the joy and pleasure you're going to derive is not by like finding out what thing I have in my head, but arguing and debating and coming up with a really cool thing that you feel good with. So as long as you feel good with, we have won this game. Like it is exactly what we wanted. And so the more explicit you can make that up front, I think will hopefully not only build buy-in with your players, but also let them play the way the game wants to kind of support them. I think making that really clear and thinking of the keeper more is, is a weird analogy. I don't play tennis, but I imagine, you know, the tennis coach that has like the player on one end of the court and they're on the other, and they just kind of keep hitting lobs over and over again to see like how the player returns them. That's kind of what you're doing as the keeper. You're just kind of lobbing things over the net and seeing how it's going to bounce back at you. And your job is really just to be kind of lobbing those balls. It's not necessarily to kind of, dominate your players or to throw them for a curveball or kind of like make them hustle and break a sweat. You are there to kind of enjoy the creativity they have in returning those balls in whatever way they think is most helpful or interesting or fun. Yeah. And I think probably what I say is mostly going to be reiterating what has just been said by Alicia and Sean. Um, but yeah, I think uh, absolutely sort of that, that idea of like not feeling like for, for all that I just said, you know, yeah, you know, cheat if you want to. Um, I, I still think that yeah, absolutely the, the the better instinct is to let the 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 game guide you and like let and you know relinquish that control rather than trying to force an outcome. Um absolutely trust the mechanics, trust the structure that they are there for a reason and sure sometimes you might want to say okay we're gonna we're gonna i'm not gonna ask you to do a thing here because i just want to get to this point or whatever that sort of flexibility is always good in any any game but trying to second guess the mechanics isn't is you know isn't the, the way to go um i i don't think 
one of my standard tips um, for any sort of like improv-based gaming is always never ever be afraid to say the answer that you think is most obvious because it won't necessarily be the thing that other people have said. Don't feel like oh, do I have to? I have to give a really like obscure clue here. Don't if 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 they're looking if they're looking through someone's desk and one of the clues is a letter, they probably find the letter. That's that's what it's there for. Um, communicate with the players as players. Don't just like sit there as as you know keeper as the the, the 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 embodiment of the world and expect them to understand what you're trying to do just through the game of cats you're presenting with and say uh, okay i'm i'm not going to ask you to make a role for this particular thing because um i don't think that you scrambling up over this wall is the important thing i think what's important is what happens when you get to the other side of that wall so that's where we're going to go or alternatively do you want to make a role to see if you get over this wall? Because is that something you as a, as a player are interested in doing? Because if so, we'll do that. Otherwise I don't care. But if you care, then I care as well sort of thing. And I think that's it. That kind of open, open dialogue is, is important. And it's, and it's important to encourage that in the, um, in the players as well, um, that, that they can just stop and say, Hey, um, this, this is kind of where I want to go with. I'd like to have a scene with this person. All of those sort of questions, very important to have. And, and yeah, that's, I think probably, yeah, again, especially from that sort of more trad idea of, of, of what like a game session should look like. I think that's one of the most important things to have is just talk to each other as player and GM, as well as kind of being in character and, and doing a stuff. I have one other very Sprindlewood Bay specific piece of advice for players and keepers alike. And that's get in the crowns. Use the crowns. In my experience, new players are hesitant to use the crowns because it feels like a countdown to the end of your character. Um, so if you're a keeper, encourage them to use the crowns. And if you're a player, embrace them because so much of the storytelling and the character building is coming from the crowns. And as you start to work down the crown of the void, the tension naturally ratchets up in the game because you are aware that you're running out of time and options. So use the crowns. And to go back to one of your earlier points, Alicia, one of the, the areas that tripped me up when we first started running this was when the players would ask for clarification on clues. You know, as in some of our early sessions, you can hear me not knowing what to do and like madly it's like skimming through the PDF and like, what do I do if they ask for clarification? Early on, I was like, I guess roll to metal again and then i'll give you more and like very quickly realize that that was not the way to go <laughs> you know and to your last point they're making full use of the mechanics and i think that is something that in our experience on the show i think we still have not yet move used the cozy move i think that's like the last thing we haven't used I'm waiting for the day. <laughs> if you're not using the cozy move, you're not giving it enough conditions. That's what I think. Just yeah. Conditions are a keeper's best friend. Just hand them out like candy, and then your players are forced to use the cozy move to clear them. Well, this has been fantastic. I've learned a lot from you, and I hope that our listeners have as well. So let's just go around and you can let folks know where they can find you, where they can find your work and get in touch with you on whatever social media platform you love the most. Uh, Sean, where can people find you? Uh, so uh, my name is Sean Patrick Kane and I published under my initials SPC. So you can find my Brindlewood Bay mystery called Our Ladies of Safe Harbor, um, as well as a bunch of my other games on my itch store at spc.itch.io. Um, it's also available on DriveThruRPG. And if you want to get in touch with me in general, um, Twitter is a great place to do it. It's just my name at Sean Patrick Kane. David, where can folks find you? Twitter is, again, probably the best place to just sort of find me in a general sense. Um, I'm there at Chap of Steel. Uh, likewise, I have an itch page with a couple of uh, scenarios for the between on there at the minute. There will hopefully at some point be some more stuff on there, but uh, that uh, is, uh, I'm on there as uh, Trashbackus. I also have a kind of promotional Twitter at, at Trashbackus as well, though um, I, I use that a lot less than my personal one. So, you know, probably better to find me on the former. Uh, I'm also um, one of the co-hosts on the Gauntlet podcast. So if you are kind of looking into uh, looking into this sort of stuff around the Gauntlet, you you may hear me uh, on occasion. Uh, I have, in fact, um, spoken about, uh, which I did just want to get in a quick shout out for, um, Alicia and Chris's excellent, um, uh, well, two-player and GM hack um, uh, bed breakfast and beyond, uh, which is truly amazing. Um, do check that out as well. Um, but yeah, um, that's uh, that's where you can find me uh, mostly. And Alicia, where are you these days? 
I am always on Twitter. I'm on Twitter entirely too much. Uh, you can find me there just at Alicia Furness. Um, I just publish under my own name. So you can also find uh, all of my Brindlewood Bay stuff I've released on my own on itch, just Alicia Furness, itch.io. Um, I also have the stuff on Drive to RPG as well. And I have my own web store and you should buy my stuff from there because I get more money and it's in Canadian dollars. So you spend less money most likely. And that's just aliciafurness.com. Thank you all once again for coming on. I had a great time talking with you all today. Thank you, Jenna. It was really nice to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Love, love to have a chance to chat with you all. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. 